Lord, there is nothing that can compare. We do adore you, and we know we do not do so as we should. Our perceptions are weak. Our spirits are not strong to behold, to perceive, to know who you are in all of your glory. But we do praise you for the trust that we have of your word, that you have entrusted it to your church and that you use this word to deepen us and help us to see the glories that we struggle to perceive. I pray that as we come to the word of God today that you will do that in our lives as a church, that you will deepen and grow us as your people, that we will see Christ in his glory. And I pray for those who do not see that glory. That you would bring to saving faith those who do not know Christ. Meet with us here. And may we see you for who you are. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you know him to be? As we continue to chase this theme in Hebrews chapter 1, let me stress again that the answer is far more than academic. Who you believe Jesus is, how you perceive his nature, his person, his purposes, and his work undergirds every aspect of your life. It does. This is true even if your view of Jesus is inadequate, if it's inaccurate, or even rebellious. Who Jesus is is the critical question. As we noted last week, the author of Hebrews bolts from the starting blocks with a majestic declaration of the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. We read in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we've seen last week as we've considered this text that Jesus is the enfleshment of God's word. He is the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is eternal of the same substance as the Father. He is, there is Father and Son as one nature, one God in distinct persons. We see that Jesus died to purify his people from their sins and ascended in triumph over sin and death and today rules the universe from heaven's throne. Now, verse 4, angels. What's the point of that? Angels, mentioned here in verse 4, is going to bridge the way into the next section that will take us through verse 14. But speaking of bridges, before we get to the angel bridge, we must bridge a considerable gap between us and the original recipients of this written sermon, if that is what it was. 
But if we hope to grasp the message of this challenging chapter of God's Word, we've got to do some pre-work in understanding it. So it's always a joy when I hear of individuals, I know there are many of you that take the text from the bulletin or from the website each week and read that text and meditate upon it as you prepare for the gathering on the Lord's Day. And it's always an encouragement. But I suspect that a few of us, I, I would include myself, as you read this passage this week, you say, what is going on there? This is just, this just, is just hard. Is it, what, is, what is the author actually doing? And maybe you found that confusion as you read this passage. But what's going on here? It will help us to bridge the gap between us and the Hebrews by considering four ideas that supply the necessary framework to navigate this difficult chapter. Now normally I'd feather this into the text as we go through, but I'm going to do this up front because I think it will open up the meaning of the passage to us, particularly for those of you that read it and said, I have no idea what's going on here. What is this about? Why, why these texts of the Old Testament? What is being done here? I think these ideas will help. First of all, is the Hebrews' deep reverence for angels. God created a vast realm of spirit beings known as angels. On the rarest of occasions, people have seen angels, most often appearing as men. But angels are almost universally unseen spirit beings. They are there. There are many of them. They are at work. We just don't see them. Yet angels are real beings. They serve God's purposes as devoted ministers to God. They protect God's people, we find in Scripture. They reveal God's Word, especially key salvation historical moments. Think of Mary and the accounts of Christ's birth. They will serve as judges at Christ's second coming. And they have certainly a unique role in the worship of God. But what was perhaps more obvious to the Hebrews than it is to us is that angels then are awesome beings with spectacular powers. They also clearly perceive that angels are vastly superior to human beings. We have a perception that a mosquito is not to be respected the way that a dog is to be respected and that a dog is not nearly as to be respected as a person. We have this sense of the creative order. We need to add to that our understanding of angels, that we are lower than the angels in the creation pecking order, if I can say it that way. They had this sense. Angels are awesome beings. They live in God's presence. They are untouched by sin and sickness and weakness for crying out loud they can fly and they can fly really fast they're actually timed in the bible in one passage in daniel some bible scholars have concluded then from this that the hebrews who received this message were in danger of worshiping angels there's jesus there's angels, and we're tempted to worship, they were tempted to worship angels. I do not believe that's the case. I don't think they were tempted to worship angels. I think they were, however, mesmerized by these magnificent creatures. And so the real danger was not a false worship. The real danger 
was to drift away from their focus on Jesus by being unduly enamored with angels, taken up with a good consideration, but in such a way that caused them to drift away from Christ. We already can probably be thinking of some parallels there in our own day. But the second concept that I think is important to bring into this passage is the complication of Christ's incarnation. Our sin against an eternal God demanded either eternal judgment or payment by an eternal being. And since God alone is eternal, only He could die in the place of sinners to satisfy the eternal penalty that is due our sin. The problem is God cannot die. The only solution was for God to take on a human body so that He could physically die for us. So the eternal Son of God, the second person of the one triune being, took on a human body. He who, true, who was truly God became truly man in addition. Receiving a human nature in addition to his divine nature, his one person never divided, his two natures never confused. It blows our mind. We struggle all the time to try to bend our minds to understand it. But when we look at it, we can at least say this is the only way possible. Well, the Hebrews knew their Old Testament scriptures. They knew Psalm 8. Notice in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 7 where that is quoted, Psalm 8, you made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, but you made him a little lower than the angels. The incarnation of Christ creates some complications. The Jewish religion at that time emphasized angels' superior status and power in comparison with man. And in that particular environment, the recipients of this written sermon were tempted to drift away from a central focus on Christ in order to adopt a focus like their fellow Jewish people. This is what's happening in the background as the author writes. Third concept, and that is the early church's typological reading of the Old Testament. The early church was taught by Jesus to employ a typological understanding of the Old Testament. Typological, what does that mean? How do we understand that? A type is followed later in salvation history by its fulfillment, or what we call an anti-type. I can never keep these straight in the past until I stumbled upon this idea, and it's really helped me. So think type is the flower girl in the wedding. The flower girl is not getting married. She is there to look cute, but she is also representing what is to come. But she's the type. She comes first and is a picture of what is to follow. What is to follow, we know, is her aunt. Just think of it as her aunt who's getting married this day, and that's the anti-type. That's how I remember it. It's never failed me since. But just think it. So think as we're thinking of Scripture... 
We're understanding how it is put together. God continues to send down the aisle all kinds of types. Those types present themselves to us and then are fulfilled in an antitype later on in salvation history. And the connections sometimes are made at the moment, sometimes are made later. Sometimes God says, I'm sending a type down the aisle. Other times, he doesn't say anything. And we start to figure it out slowly but surely. So as the salvation story unfolds, God arranges for a type preparing his people for the greater anti-type. The type might be found in a prophet. It might be found in a priest or a king. It might be detected in a promise, a practice, a symbol, or the nation of Israel and the like. One of the most fertile fields of typology in Scripture is the connection to King David and God's promises concerning David's sons and the future kingdom. How do we know Jesus is God's son? How do we know that he is God, very God? The Lord prepares us for this with persons and practices and messages and promises and the like to slowly guide us that it is unmis- so that it is unmistakable that Christ is our Savior. The promise to David that he would have a son sit on his throne forever is one of the richest of these types. So David, we know and we understand from our perspective that David often speaks of a greater son. He speaks of a son that he seems to be speaking of as God indeed. This son would reign forever in fulfillment of God's promise. So the Hebrews understand this method of interpretation, and so they understand the passages quoted here in verses 5 through 14 as referring to Jesus as antitype, as the fulfillment of what the prophets have been saying and what the, uh, what the ritual system of Israel has been pointing to all along. So we have a tendency, we have the New Testament. And we have a tendency then to read this string of passages and to say, what, ah, ah, is this the right way to interpret this? Is this a right use of the Old Testament to make this point? But we have to remember the Hebrews didn't have a New Testament. They couldn't lean upon that. And so their Bible, the Old Testament, they are hearing these verses like you and I would be hearing something from Romans developing the idea that salvation is not by works but by faith alone. And we have this string of passages in Romans and John, let's say, and very familiar to us. These verses would have been very familiar to them. Psalm 110, particularly, as the whole string ends on that word, would be like our John 3.16. You don't even have to say it. Everybody knows what it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We know this. We know this truth. It's there. It's ingrained for us. This is Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures as they come to this text. One more point, and that's the author's contextual game plan here. If you enter into this passage saying that the Hebrews are in danger of worshiping angels, 
I think you really miss what he's up to. And the tendency then is to end the chapter right where it does and to just not really think a lot, I don't think, about chapter 2. But the author's contextual game plan, notice verse 5, it says, To which of the angels did God ever say? And then notice verse 13. Verse 5, to which of the angels does God ever say? And then verse 13, the same phrase. To which of the angels has he ever said? This is one way before headings were provided that we can say is a, is, a, is a section. It's marked off by this key phrase. So it holds together, but all of this then is pointing toward the exhortation in chapter 2. Therefore, on the basis of all that I've said here in chapter 1, that wasn't chapter 1 then, but for us, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, there's the angels, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's where he's headed. They aren't rejecting Jesus for angels they're drifting away from Jesus with their infatuation. So, if the angels delivered messages in the Old Testament, what are we going to say if we drift away from the eternal Son, who is now the enfleshment of the Word of God? Don't drift away. That's his game plan. Now, with all of that staked, we go fairly quickly through the passage. Chapter 1 and verse 5, we find a reference here as we bridge these concepts. We don't have the time to dig in deeply to the context of each of the verses that the author here references. But let me just say this. You can pursue this yourself. You'll find it to be the case if you choose to do it. But you can hear me on this. He is always being very faithful to the Old Testament context. He's not picking out ideas and just making them up into whatever he wants, but there's a deep reading of the context of the Old Testament that indeed points to Christ, that was intended to point to Christ. And you'll find that his use then of the Old Testament is always accurate and faithful. And again, his readers would not have needed much help. They would have said, yes, this is their Bible. These are the texts they've heard often. They know immediately that they point to Christ as anti-type, at least in some cases. So with that in view, um, I'm going to... the, The author here assembles his biblical support into three groupings of two passages, which informs the outline that I'll present here. We can just see it quickly... But in each, uh, in verse 5, there's two verses that are coupled together around the catchword son. In verses 6 through 7, these two psalms are quoted around the catchword angel. And in verses 8 through 12, the emphasis falls on these two psalms, passages from the Psalter, around the word you, and the emphasis on the word you, with verse 13 as the pinnacle, the John 3.16, in a sense, of the Old Testament. 
and we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, let's look at the, uh, the supremacy of Christ seen in here in chapter 1. First of all, the Son's unique relationship to the Father. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. We just read this earlier today. This is Psalm 2. God is opposed by the raging nations, but seats His King on Mount Zion. So get as a picture here the, a, a triumphal enthronement psalm. The early church understood Psalm 2 to find fulfillment in Christ. And in this ancient context, son, remember, doesn't refer to necessarily uh, one's birth. You were born today meant in this context the ascendant king's status as the son, the one who is equal with the king. In other words, the king rules on his father's throne, in his father's place, acting with all the authority and all the function of his father. You are begotten. Again, they would not have used that word as we exclusively do, referring to one's birth, but this is an ascension psalm. This is a place where a king is being crowned, and they say here, on this day you are begotten. doesn't mean he started to live there. He was just birthed in the moment, and now is a full-grown man taking the throne. Begotten means he's entered into this new realm, into this world as king. So in the ancient world, begotten did not necessarily refer to one's birth, but here to one's enthronement. So when it says, today I begotten you, it refers to the king's ascension to the throne, and thus to Christ's ascension to the Father. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, is the next verse that is quoted there in verse 5. This referring to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Again, the typology, the son of David who would rule on his throne points forward to the ultimate enthronement of the eternal Son of God. And Christ is declared to be Son of God in power, Romans 1.4, upon his ascension to God's right hand. So as we go to the Old Testament context, it informs what he is saying here, and the picture is of Jesus, the Son of God. Not a Son of God, but the Son of God, the only Son of God. We are sons of God only by means of our spiritual union with the Son of God. Jesus is the Son, and here's the point, no angel has ever had that status. No angel has ever had that status. So the author moves then to the second grouping in verses 6 and 7. The nature of angels' relationship to the Son also points to the supremacy of Christ. Verse 6, and again, that is again in quoting the Old Testament, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It's really hard not to read what we just read here in verse 6 and not think Jesus' birth, right? When he brings Jesus into the world, the angels are called to worship. And we know that, in fact, this took place as Christ was born in Bethlehem, the angels came and worshiped. We have to work a little harder, and this author really makes us work all the time. But he's doing so here, I think, in this 
we need to read this phrase in the context. The context is Christ's ascension to the throne of the universe, having died, risen, and ascended. That's the context here. Secondly, go to chapter 2 and verse 5. Chapter 2 and verse 5, notice how the phrase is used there. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Ah. We always do when we hear world as we think our world, our universe. This is the world. This is the only world that really matters. Well, it's not the world that, only world that matters. There's a world to come. There's a world in a realm that is beyond this world. And so within the context of ascension, what he's speaking of here is the firstborn from the dead entering heaven in that world and in that moment. Imagine it, believer. Christ ascends into heaven and is received in heaven as the conquering king. And the Father calls the angels, worship him. Worship him. Of the angels, verse 7, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They're awesome. They're like the power of wind and the power of fire in this world. His angels are like that. They can affect all of God's will that he calls them to achieve. They are powerful beings. But we come to that third section and notice there, verse 8, the but. This is true of angels. They are great beings, but... We see the Son's relationship to the universe in contrast to the angels. Verse 8, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness beyond Your companions, or like no other. So angels are majestic beings and creatures superior for now to man. But they are ministers of God. At the end of the day, angels are not seated on God's throne. But he speaks here from this psalm of the one who is, it is said of him, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is, de- this is the, the psalm of ascension for the Davidic king. And there's this strange thing going on where this king is addressed as God, verse 8, and then down below, verse 9, God, your God. Is is the psalmist all confused? Just addressed him as God and now says, your God. And of course, we're coming to understand as we grasp the triune being that they are both true. He is God, and he relates to God. Or as John 1 puts it, he is God, and he is with God. We cannot work that out in our humanity. And when we try to work it out in our humanity, what we do is we mess up Christ. So I started with that question, who is Jesus? It's really careful that we walk in lines with Scripture. You are God. And you are with God. Both and. 
So let the angels worship him who is God. This quotation here in verse 8 from Psalm 45, 6 and 7 is a Davidic king's wedding. At that wedding, referring to a man in front of you as God seems very unusual. There's a way to do that and to twist that within the type. But with the antitype, Jesus Christ fulfills the prophecy perfectly. The one who is God and is with God. Verse 10, the second couplet of verses. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. A quotation of Psalm 102. This psalm speaks of God, yet without hesitation, the author of Hebrews says, here's Jesus. What is said of God can be said of Jesus. And so he does so here, saying that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, pointing us back to verse 2. In verses 11 and 12, we have this imagery of, of, of a robe that is rolled up, of clothes that are changed or garments that are changed. The idea points us to the transitory nature of the created order. Christ's authority and power as the eternal God is to gather up the universe like he's just picking up an old jacket that's got holes in it. It's that simple for him. He is eternal. He will never end. He is the creator and the sustainer of all. But this physical universe, he'll roll it up like an old coat and send it off to Goodwill, wherever. That was not paid for advertisement. It's just not a problem to him. Wow, do we not have a trouble getting a hold of that? We think a lot of things are a problem to God. Because they're a problem to us. He cares. He has no problems. There's nothing too great for his arm. So, like a garment, he'll change them. But you are the same. Yesterday, today, forever, Christ is never weak, never runs out of ideas, will never prove incompetent, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so when Jesus shakes the universe and turns it to molten fire in the end, in purifying judgment, the angels will sit by in wonder and glad terror. They are like wind. They are like fire. They can affect all kinds of purposes, but there will be a day when they sit down in absolute awe as they see the sun bring everything to judgment and to finality. And now the concluding crescendo of this string of proof texts. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I imagine... The original recipients of this, just hearing it and their lips start to move 
as we, they quote the passage that's quoted so often. No other Old Testament passage quoted more in the New Testament than this right here. This is, this is their John 3.16. Sit at my right hand. He is crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again. And all of the enemies of Christ that now rage in this world, Psalm 2, will be brought to His feet in submission one day. This the church rejoiced in and knew this psalm so well. And so he ends here, rightfully so. To which of the angels has God ever made such an awesome declaration? And obviously the answer is none. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? Indeed they are, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, certainly they are, but they are serving Christ's cause. They are great, awesome beings. You are right to consider them, but do not let that take you away from Christ. We've got to pay closer attention, he says in chapter 2, to not drift away. Respond to the salvation that we have in Christ alone. So the, the bridge is created. The preparation is made to enter into this exhortation and to remind us not to drift from Christ in any other way. Now, there is a challenge here again as far as the gap between us and them. I doubt that anybody that I'm speaking to today is really seriously concerned with being overly enamored with angels. We maybe don't think about them enough or we come up with these goofy stories and the like, but we're really not overly taken with angels as a temptation and a problem as Christians in this day. But let's just say it became that. Let's say it did become a temptation. There's Navy pilots that report with some regularity what they call unidentified aerial phenomena. UPA. The same thing as the more pedestrian unidentified flying object, which just <laughs> makes more sense to us, I guess. But unidentified aerial phenomena, they report these all the time. Don't know what they are. There's some sort of ship, some sort of spaceship, some sort of fast-moving light thing. We, we don't know where they are, but there are some who claim they see these things constantly. Now, let's just say that these sightings somehow are proven to be real. And through some technological wonder, some pictures are taken, and whatever, however it works, these objects are revealed to be not spaceships from far-off planets, but flying men. And while the media remains confused, over time, Christian people begin to say, these are angels. Somehow through this technology, we've slowed things down and we're looking into heaven. I'm playing games here, okay? Don't take this home. But <laughs> they're angels. And we as churches say it. How, I ask, should Eden Baptist Church respond if that was the case? Can you imagine how churches would jump into action over this news? I don't need to tell you that they'd be all over it. Their worlds would be pulsating with interest in angels. There'd be sermon series on angels. And there'd be books being written so fast to make your head spin. And evangelistic opportunities. Come and hear about angels. 
Christian radio media outlets would obsess over angels. Would they not? Like this is proof that they live and we see them and they're there and this is amazing. How should Eden Baptist Church respond in this imaginary scenario? I think we should respond with a fixation on Jesus Christ. That's how we should respond. We should respond by saying, praise God for the ongoing ministry of angels. But Jesus Christ is their supreme master and maker. And ours. And that's what matters. He's the Savior. We, we rest in Him. So let's come back to reality. Away from the UFOs and... They're not angels, okay? But if they've proved to be. But back to reality. We do face similar temptations in our world to be drawn off by religious experiences and emphases that take us away from our focus on Christ. That is an ongoing problem with God's people. Interesting spiritual topics. Practices that can conspire to turn our fixation away. If we're not careful, we can drift away from our devotion to Jesus by becoming overly focused on, for instance, spiritual experiences. This is a major challenge to the Christian church. It might be speaking in ecstatic tongues. It might be pressing healings and believing that there's schemes that we can follow to find miraculous healings. It could be through euphoric musical experiences. It becomes all about this moment and this emotion of drawing to God and the like. It comes through meditation and mixing in the practices of other religions and peoples. It can become church ministry. The church ministry is thriving and things are going well and we become enamored with it. It begins to pull away our focus from Christ because we're so interested in the work that we're doing for Him. Or it might find its course in discovering keys to the Christian life. Oh, how many Christians flitting about the earth to this conference and that conference, reading this book and that book with this new novel idea of how to fix whatever. Marriage, how to fix your faith relationship. We've got this key, this new idea. We chase these ideas. And what it really does is draws us away from Jesus. Some new therapeutic answer. Or it could be in the political realm. Political messiahs supposedly tapped by God to rescue America. And we begin to drift away from Jesus. We get interested. We fall into these emphases. And we really begin to lose our walk with Christ. So there's a multiplicity of traps that can beset us. But this we need to identify. If Hebrews is teaching us anything, we need to identify that I am always in danger of drifting away from Jesus. I'm drifting away from that relationship which alone can save and which alone can sanctify. He is the object of heaven's white-hot worship, and He should be the object of our worship. 
For he is, as we read again in verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God. He's the brightness of the light that is God. No separation. One together. And yet, he is the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. We let that phrase fly by. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. How foolish when we are out chasing other ideas and schemes and experiences as if he doesn't uphold the universe by the word of his power. This is the Christ we know. This is the Christ that we can know. And this is where we need to focus and not drift away. So I think when it comes to matters such as our personal fight against sin, how should we respond How should we respond to Jesus in our personal fight against sin? The center of it all is how you see and know Jesus Christ. It's not going to be a seminar, a book, some scheme, some plan. It's going to be being enamored with the glory and the majesty and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. That's where it's at. Your home environment. What's it ordered to? Is it ordered to mostly politics? Is it ordered to mostly fun? Is it oriented to mostly making money? Or is it genuinely focused on the one whose word upholds the universe and who is the Savior? Is Christ central in our homes and is that evident? We talk about a lot of mundane things. We need to. We have to carry on life. It's not, not to say we turn it in our homes into church services. But is it clear that Jesus Christ is Lord and nothing is causing us to drift away? How should it affect our Bible classes and our sermons in this local church? Let us say again, as we say so often, but let us say it with genuine meaning in light of the glory that we see here in this chapter, that Jesus Christ is the epicenter of our worldview, the very hub of all of Scripture, and the focus of every class, every sermon, and every gathering. This church exists because Jesus lives and died and rose again. May it then be evident to all who walk through our doors, to all who participate in the teaching of this church, that this church belongs to Jesus Christ. It's His. And we're all about Him. We can differ on a lot of things. We can bless other churches even for some things. But this church is about Christ. May we keep it there. And then as an assembly, to always say it's not about us as we assembly. It's, assemble. It's not about our experience. It's about Christ. This gathering is about Him. Not our experience, but the glory of Christ's name. And the outcome of this, as it was for Christ, that God anoints us with the oil of gladness as we journey through this dying world in pursuit of our, internal, our eternal inheritance in His presence. In His presence. He anoints us with the oil of gladness. It is in the person of Christ, in knowing Him, in walking with Him, 
that we enter into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. So if you do not know Christ the Savior today, I, I cannot paint with human words a greater picture of His supremacy, of His glory, of His wisdom, and of His saving grace to lost and hopeless sinners. But if you can see in the light of this moment that you are lost and hopeless, I call you to come to this Savior. There is no other Savior. There is no other answer. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through the Son who has the status and function and does what the Father does. Come to Christ. For those of us who know Him, the question we really must ask, and we'll do so as we come back into chapter 2, Lord willing, down the road here soon, but are you drifting away from your devotion to Christ? Are you so caught up with the things of this world, maybe even with some religious emphases, Are you so caught up there that you're drifting away from Jesus? Jesus is a knowledge that you have, but it's growing cold. You're not focusing upon Him. He is not the joy of your soul. Don't continue to drift, but rather return. Be reminded of His glory and His greatness. May we look full into the face of our Savior and come together to adore Him, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would enable us to do that, not in our own strength, but in Yours. To come to perceive that we must repent here of our small thoughts about You. We must come and confess that we do not see Your glory as we should. If we did, we would forgive in a different way. We would speak in a different way. We would think in a different way. We would not be knocked over by the trials and the challenges of this life as we are. We would not be given to anxiety. We would not love the things of this earth and hold on to them in a vice grip. God, we acknowledge that we fall far short of perceiving the glories, the goodness of our Savior. We praise You that He took on flesh in our place. And we, we ask now in, the, in this moment of prayer and meditation and singing that You would draw us to adore You, to know You better, and to realize that Christ is our life. To live as Christ, to die, is to know Him even better. And Father, as we come to know Him, I pray that we would give ourselves to the New Testament Scriptures which reveal Jesus to us. We don't see Him. We can't walk and talk with Him in a physical way today. But I pray that we would understand how these texts of Scripture draw us to who He is. May we see Him for who He is. May we pursue Him as a church in the pages of Scripture, seeking to know Your Word and to put it into practice. Lord, we just pause here as words fail to thank You for the revelation of who You are in the person of Jesus Christ. We praise Him. We exalt His name. 
And we come drawn to him as the epicenter of our life together. May Christ here in this church always be praised for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he will do to bring to close the story of this earth in its fallenness and to usher us into the eternal kingdom where we will forever and ever live without sin and with our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.